0: Good morning again. We should be back up here again. Pastor Andrew and Amanda, by the way, are on the way back from Ohio here soon. Actually, I think he's going to a baseball game this afternoon, and then they'll be back. But he was in Ohio. Uh with his family, celebrating the life of his grandmother. So that's where Pastor Andrew and Amanda are today. So if you think about it, pray for them as they continue uh, to process that. But I want to take a minute today uh, before we dive into the conversation that we're going to have this morning and have a bit of like a family conversation just for a minute for two reasons. Um, First of all, I want to say, obviously, you've realized it's Like August is coming to an end, right? School is going to start up soon. Fall is getting back. I already talked to you about groups. Sports have started up, and all the schedules and stuff are coming back, right? And so, one of the things that I want to do is I want to also encourage us to make sure, in the midst of all the scheduling stuff, that church still be stays the same uh, priority right? And so maybe some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Corey, you have to say that. You're the pastor, right? I know. I do have to say that because I'm the pastor. But at the same time, here's what I truly believe, and then I'll get off my my stool here that I'm on for a minute. I believe truly, from my experience in life, that being at church on a regular basis is the best thing for you, and it's the best thing for us. And so if you're listening to the podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm saying us as in I'm like sweeping my arms across the room because I believe as a church, we are better when you are here. And the same is true in your personal life. And so when we put all of that together, our commitment, our connection, our encouragement, all of that together as the church, that's the church. And so I get it, right? I remember during the pandemic when we would pre-record services and I got to wake up on Sunday morning and I got to sit at home in my pajamas and drink coffee during church. And I liked it, right? Right? It's something that is nice every once in a while. And I'm not saying don't do it, right? You get a weekend where there's a wedding and three soccer games, and you're like, Sunday, we just need to breathe. I get it, right? That's why it's there, too. But at the same time, that shouldn't be the norm. What we want to, is, to do is connect as a church family. And so I would just encourage you as we get into the fall, we want to do that. Okay, speech over. Now, here, let me tell you about something else I need to tell you about as a church, we don't call our our members members. We call them partners. And sometimes when I say that, some people ask me the question, well, why do you call them partners? And I say, here's the reason. When I go to Costco, I'm a member, right? Now, when I go to Costco, I go to Costco to buy meat to put on my smoker, okay? That's why I go there, right? I go to buy something. I go to make a transaction. I go because if I buy enough stuff in bulk, it makes sense, right? But I don't go to build a relationship with the person selling me the meat. I just don't. Maybe I should. That's not why I go to Costco, right? There's a transaction there, right? I pay money, you give me stuff. That's not what the church is. The church is a ministry. We are a movement, a body of believers that believe something and want our community to understand the same thing. And so when we say that, we say we want to be partners in ministry together. When you're in a partnership, it's much different than a membership. Partnership says, there's skin in the game, right? You're going to do your job. I'm going to do mine. We're going to work together and make this thing work. That's different than a membership, and so that's what we say we're committing to, and one of the things that our partners get to do here at GFC is we get to elect elders. We get to elect our eldership to say these are the men that we believe we want to lead and be making the, the decisions for our church at a, at a large level, okay? And so one of the things that we're going to do, uh, we have to do coming up, is we need to elect a new elder. Now you might say, well, why are we doing that or why do we need to do that? First of all... we we came to the end of Ted Zeissett's term as an elder. So he, our terms are three years long for elders. He came to the end of his term and he said, "I think it's best for me to be done being an elder." And that was good process, and that was that was a good conversation to have. Uh, Mike Lewis was one of our elders. He has come to the almost to the end of his term, and he came to us and just said, "I think it would be best for my family right now if I step away from being an elder and be able to invest more time in them." So again. We love and support him in that and say, if that's a decision you need to make for your family, that is the more important decision to make. And so he has transitioned out of eldership. That means that we still have uh, Jesse and Ray and Andrew and myself. And so we need to elect uh, another elder. And so the person that we would bring before you to say we would want to have that vote uh, is Mike Martin. And you might say, I don't know Mike Martin. And I would say, yes, you do. He just sat right here. Okay, so Mike has been Mike has been in our church for a very long time. Uh, Mike uh, has shown leadership ability. He leads on the worship team. He has led uh, business in his personal life, but also he leads Bible studies with his grandkids in his personal life. Um, and so we know that there's leadership aspects there, both in a spiritual and even in a non-spiritual, I guess you would say, way. There's just he's a good leader, and, and we love him. Um, and many of you know him. And so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to have a vote. Uh, For Mike, that email is going to go out because we're going to do an online vote. By the way, if you're confused by any of what I'm saying, this is all on YouTube. So if you get home and you go, this is a lot to talk about, Pastor Corey, I know, go back and watch it or we're going to send an email out this week. We'll do an online vote, which is what we've done in the past. So if you're a partner, you will get an email this week with the opportunity to vote. If you are someone that says, I don't like voting online, I don't know how to do that. For the next two weeks, we will have physical ballots here in the building so that you can come in, cast your vote, and put your vote in one of the offering boxes, okay? That vote will close on September 11th, Sunday, September 11th, okay? So just to recap, we want to elect Mike Martin. We'll put him up for a vote uh, to be one of our elders. You can do that online. You'll get the email. be super simple. um, Or you can come into the building and do it. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to myself or Pastor Andrew, okay? Great. If you have questions, please email me. All right, now let's transition into our conversation for today. We've been in this conversation of summer love forever, right, for the whole summer. We've been sitting in 1 Corinthians 13. This is week 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, and we've been processing what it means to love the way God has called us to love and how Paul tells us to love in First Corinthians 13. And I love the way Pastor Andrew said it a few weeks ago, right? And I'll keep using this example. I think it will stick with me forever, is that as we've looked at this, it's like a gem or a diamond that we have like just continued to turn every week and you see a new facet and a new understanding of what it means to love. And so we've gone through literally sentence by sentence, word by word, and said, what does it actually mean to love, And one of the things that maybe has been true for you, I know it's been true for me, and it's, it kind of gets you to an interesting place, is when you start to think about this and you go, this is impossible. How do I do this? Like, you, you see the new facet every week, and maybe like for the first couple weeks, you're like, yeah, okay, I can do that. And then like it just kept going and going and going and going. And you go, this is, this is next to impossible, if not impossible. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you would look at this and say, this is a good way to love people. It's also not attainable. Like to do this well all the time seems just ridiculous. Why would God ask us to do this? Why would Paul ask us to do this? And I think it's actually a good thing when we get to the space where we go, I can't do exactly what God does. I think the tension in that, in that space is actually really good because I don't think any of us want to worship anyone or anything that we can achieve the same thing that they can do or we can be the same way as them. And so when God says, this is the way you are to love, and we kind of realize that seems a little bit impossible, it means that we'll never actually arrive, and until we stand before God in glory, it's just not going to happen, but it's still this goal to be chased after because we can see that it's what we're called to do. And when we truly love people this way, we we can look at Jesus and go, well, he did it perfectly, so it's something that we should do because if he loved people that way, then we're called to do the same. And so there's been some tension in that and the understanding of how we continue to chase after. So I say that to say, yes, it feels impossible, but at the same time, it's a good thing that it's impossible. It's something that we can continue to pursue and always get better at. I want to start where we've started almost every week in verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians. So we'll go with 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. It says, love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. In verse 6, it says it does not rejoice with injustice or wrongdoing, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. And then verse 7 says this, Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And that part in yellow, endures through every circumstance, is what we're going to talk about today. Interesting that he lands there, right? Because this is a pretty sweeping declaration. Endures through every circumstance. It doesn't say through some circumstances, through these circumstances or that circumstances. It says through every circumstance. And as I was thinking about this and processing, I realized that one important word is missing from verses 4 to 7 that I would almost expect to be there. And I think the way that we think about love sometimes, this word is very prevalent. And it's just not there in verses 4 to 7. And here's that word. It's the word If The word if doesn't show up in verses 4 to 7, at least not in the NLT that we're talking about here. Paul just makes these declarations. He just says love is, love does this, love never gives up, it never loses faith. There is no if, right? It never loses faith if, it never, never gives up if. The word if doesn't exist there. And I think sometimes in the way that we understand love, we include that word. We say, I'll do X, Y, and Z if. Or I'll make that move if. Or I'll do this if. In fact, as you were, like, when, if you're married, like, maybe think back to when you were dating or getting ready to date somebody, or if you're in the stages of dating right now, like, you probably came into a relationship with with the other person with a set of ifs, right? If they are a follower of Jesus, blank, right? Then I can pursue this. If they're good with their money, I can pursue this relationship. If they respect their family, I can. And so ifs sometimes are good, and we know that Paul is not just talking about romantic love in this circumstance, but that can lead us, that if idea can lead us to a place where we start to categorize what we will do to love other people. I remember uh, in high school, I've told you this before, I am terrible at math. That is not my strong suit, especially algebra. Algebra, pre-calculus, all that stuff, just don't come near me with that, okay? The one thing I did okay at was geometry. Geometry. And the reason I did okay with geometry is I'll never forget the first day of class, sophomore year, my teacher pulled out a book called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Anyone ever read that book before? Okay, handful. It's not a geometry book, but here's what he was helping us understand. You can use what they call if-then statements to move yourself along in geometry and be able to put the pieces together to get to the space where you need to be. Well, Corey who doesn't do well with math problems but can use words pretty well could actually explain and say if then a lot. And so what I would do on my math tests while other kids were using I think they were called proofs like you could there was names for them I was like no 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 I would write paragraphs about how this would work. And my teacher was okay with that. And so that's how I passed geometry was because I was able to use these if then statements and it, was, it worked well for me geometry, here's what I would say. It doesn't work well when it comes to love. If we're using if-then statements when it comes to loving people the way we're called to, it falls apart. Because I believe that this is true. True love, the love that God has for us, knows no conditions. We all know the difference, right? We all know the difference between someone who loves us unconditionally and someone who doesn't love us unconditionally, or someone who's, um, who, whose affinity for us is based on what we can do and not do. I remember when I was uh, working at Best Buy, I had some friends come in one day, and they were going to buy a TV. I actually didn't work in the section where the TVs were sold, but because they were my friends, they asked for me. And so the department called me over and said, hey, your friends are here. I, was, I think it was actually the GM of the store that was there that day. He called me over on like the little intercom thing in my ear and said, hey, your friends are here. Come sell them a TV. Okay, great. So I go over, hang out with my friends for a while. They buy the TV. And we would get to this point, I think Best Buy still like this. I haven't walked in there in a while. But anytime you bought anything, there was always those like protection plans, Right? By the way, don't ever buy the protection plan. It's not worth it, okay? Just from the inside, I'm just telling you, it's all a money scheme, okay? So they would ask us to do this. In fact, at times, they would say, if you can sell the most protection plans, you'll get a gift card at the end of the day. So they would have us, like, competing against one another to see who could get the most protection plans sold, okay? So anyway, we get to the end of the conversation. I knew that was all a money-making scheme. I didn't mind asking them. So we get to the point on the register where it says... Do you want to have it? And I looked at my friends and I said, Do you want it? They said no. I said, okay, and I kept going, right? Didn't mind asking them, but I wasn't gonna push it. They're my friends, and I know they don't necessarily need it, right? So anyway, I keep going. They they're happy, they buy their TV, they leave the store. The GM comes back over to me and goes, How'd it go? I was great, they bought a TV. They said, He said, Did you sell them a protection plan? I said, No, they didn't want it. He goes, They didn't want it? And I was like, No, they didn't want it. He's like, You need to do a better job of trying to sell them that. And I was like okay. I worked there for nine months. Shocker. Um, So I kept going, right? So is this one of those things where it's like his, like when we started the conversation, he's like, here's your friends, go sell them a TV. This is great. At the end of the conversation, it was, you need to do a better job, right? Even though they were happy, my friendship was still intact. I was happy. He wasn't. His connection to me, his obviously, you know, his affinity for me as an employee was based on what I could do for the company. When that's true in any relational circumstance, that doesn't build the relationship. It's an if-then statement. If you can accomplish, then I will show you affection, or I will show you joy, I'll be happy with you, or whatever it's going to be. Nobody likes being in that space. And so love that God has for us, love that he calls us to, love that Paul talks about, knows no conditions. This is difficult. This is a hard place to be. I want to go to a place in Scripture today to have this conversation that really, I think, drives this point home. We're going to go to Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. Um, we'll have Obviously, we'll have the verses up on the screen like we have. You can follow along um, on your phone or your tablets. If you'd like to, you can scan the follow-along uh, up on the screen or on the Next Step card. Uh, by the way, that will give you all the notes, all the verses, all the—you can ask a question, submit a prayer request. We'd love that. But we're going to start in Hosea. Chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 2. Hosea 1 verse 2 says this, When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Now, big time out right here, right? <laughs> Loaded verse. Um, maybe you've heard... The story of hosea before maybe you haven't if you haven't your eyes are probably like this big right now right pastor andrew said he got to go through hosea with the students recently he said that was very interesting and so we talked through this and figured out and and this is one of those moments where if you've grown up in church you're used to scripture and the the kind of thing like you've read this you're like okay i know the story of hosea you get a little numb to it if this is your first time reading this this is crazy and it's one of those moments where we have to step back as followers of Jesus and go, this is why sometimes people who haven't grown up in church, don't understand scripture, haven't just been around this forever, they look at stories like this and they go, what are you talking about? Same thing with Mary, right? When she gets pregnant, but it's Jesus. And so she goes, like, if you were Mary's best friend, right? Love her unconditionally. And she came to you and said, I'm pregnant. And you're like, Mary, what did you do? And she goes, no, it's God. You would look at her and go, Mary, come on, Right? This is one of those moments Imagine you're friends with Hosea And Hosea, you know, you're walking down the street or whatever And you know you're coming to a point in town Where these women stand on that street corner And so you make sure, like, you're on the other side of the street You continue down, you don't usually look over that way You're just kind of, like, staying clear And you're walking along with Hosea And you notice Hosea looking for a long time over at that street corner And you're like, Hosea, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm going to marry that one And you'd go, no, you're not. Why would you go and marry a prostitute? Why would you do this? And if he turned to you and said, God told me to, you would say, first of all, no. Second of all, that goes against everything God tells us. Right? Why would you do that? And yet this is the story that we have. And so Hosea, being the obedient person that he is, goes and marries a prostitute. You may be thinking, if you're Hosea in this moment, why does why this lesson have to come to me, God? Like, like, could somebody else's life be this lesson for everybody? Because this is why God said, right? This will illustrate how Israel is acted like a prostitute. You're like, couldn't there be somebody else that gets this illustration? But at the same time, Hosea gets the honor of showing how much God loves us in this story. So much so that thousands of years later, we're having a conversation about Hosea. So let's go ahead. We're going to move forward. We're actually going to chapter 3. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Hosea marries a prostitute, and life goes on a little bit. They have some kids. Hosea chapter 3 verse 1 says this. says, "'Then the Lord said to me, "'Go and love your wife again, "'even though she commits adultery with another lover. "'This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel.'" even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So here's what happens, right? They get married, they have some kids. She goes back to prostitution. And you're like, at this moment, if you're Hosea, you're out, right? Like, this is, this is a deal breaker. Like, okay, I took that big step first time. Like, okay, I was obedient. Didn't ne- She wasn't necessarily the top of the list, but we'll go that direction because God told me to. And now she goes back to that. She leaves her family. And God says, go and love your wife again. Then he goes on in verse 2 of chapter 3 and says this, So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Now I want to point out a few things about, about this verse. First of all, it, it, didn't, it wasn't just like Hosea had to just go say, come back. He had to go spend money to get her back. He had to buy her out of prostitution to get her back. The amount here we see is uh, 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. This is the equivalent at the time of about six months' worth of wages. So just take your annual salary, cut it in half, and say, this is the amount I have to go spend— to get my prostitute wife back, who now is back in prostitution after being my wife. It's not a small chunk of change. It's not a couple hundred dollars, probably not a couple thousand dollars, right? This is, this is a lot of money that he has to go and say, I'm willing to spend this to get her back. Here's the other thing. Uh, fifteen pieces of silver. Then you look at the five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. That also equaled about fifteen pieces of silver. Do you recognize 30 pieces of silver from anywhere else in Scripture? It's the same amount that Judas was paid to sell out Jesus. You think this story wasn't on his mind when he had that going on? That he would sell them out for the same amount that God told Hosea to go buy his prostitute wife back for. The last thing I want to point out about this verse is that when you look at This verse, and you see, so I bought her back. The word that's used there is the same word that's used for redeemed. And so we know, we use the word that Jesus is the redeemer, right? This is a picture of what Jesus does for us when he gave his life for us. That he would redeem us, just like Hosea redeemed his wife. This is is a massive story that carries through Scripture and helps us understand exactly the kind of love that God has for us. Through every circumstance, right? This is is the epitome of every circumstance. I mean, if there was something that somebody could do wrong to lose our love, like, this is the epitome of it. And yet God says, go and love her again. Spend this money. Go redeem her. Bring her back. And I want to point out a very specific phrase that I've said a couple of times now from verse 1. God says, go and love your wife again, even though. Here's what I believe love does, and this is the way I want us to understand it. Love turns if into even though. So while we might understand love and be thinking and processing, if they do this, then I will love them. If they do this, I'll give them my time. If they do this, I'll blah, 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 right? That's the way that I think, and I think it's a temptation. That's the way we think. The way God thinks is even though. So even though you've chosen to worship something else, I still love you. Even though you go the opposite direction when I tell you to go this direction, I still love you. Even though you... Deny me outright, I love you even though. If goes out the window and is replaced by even though. And what we learn about this, what we learn from Hosea, we learn from this example that God gives us is two things. First of all, love is to be given freely, but it always costs something. Sometimes we feel as though... we when we love somebody, it should just be easy, right? That's the early part of like a dating relationship that's great. It just feels easy. Everybody's happy. You love spending time together. There's been no fights yet. Like all that kind of stuff. Like that, that, that moment is like, this is great. This doesn't, this isn't costing me very much. But true love is going to cost you something. When I was uh, in college and Becca and I were dating, uh, I had to try and find amount, some amount of money to buy her a ring. So I did something that I, you know, a lot of kids do in college. I sold all my books. Like I had all these expensive textbooks sitting around like I may not need these again. I'm going to sell this and save every penny so that I could buy a ring. Do you know what happened? I bought that ring. I proposed. We got married. Great. A couple years after we got married, I went back to seminary. Guess what books I needed? All the ones I sold. So I had to go back and buy all those books again. Not all of them, but there was a bunch, okay? I remembered. I was like, I had this in my hand, and now it's on her finger, right? That's, that's the way this worked. So I had to go back and buy them again. Totally worth it, right? I, I'd never look back and went, well, I wish I could. Can I return your ring so I can buy my books back? Like, I'm not. That never crossed my mind, right? Because it was totally worth it. Because the cost of those books or that rent, whatever, like, no problem. I'd spend that over again in a heartbeat. But it'll always cost you something to love other people. And sometimes it's not the stuff that we expect. Sometimes it's going to cost us our humility. Sometimes it's going to cost us our pride. Sometimes it's going to cost us our time or our energy. Whatever it may be, we're supposed to give it freely. But it's going to cost us something, just like it cost Hosea, just like it cost Jesus. Now we wrap up Hosea... A little bit. We'll go back to chapter 3. Reverses uh, 4 and 5. It says, This shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or a prince, and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant. That's very important. So, devote yourself to God and David's descendant, their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and his goodness. I want to jump forward now to one more verse, verse 4 of chapter 14 in Hosea, okay? So the Lord says, Then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love for you will know no bounds, and my anger will be gone forever. This is also a prophecy, right? These two verses we just read are prophecy. And so God is saying to Hosea, what you are doing, the way that I've called you to live your life, the way this is going to play out, is that in the future, there will come David's descendant, a king in the last days. He says, and Israel and others will tremble in awe of the Lord and his goodness. And he says then in 4, right? Chapter 4 of 14. I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love for you will know no bounds, and my anger will be gone forever. You see, Israel lived in a space that we don't understand. Israel could tangibly see the wrath of God. He, they could see it. Like, God would do things, and it would be like, this is a problem, right? Wandering in the desert for 40 years. They disobeyed God, and it cost them 40 years. They could tangibly see what it meant when the wrath of God was there. We don't understand that because we live after Jesus. And and after Jesus, God sees Jesus' blood instead of his wrath. Not for the whole world, but for those of us who follow him. And so God's interaction with his people are different because his wrath is not there because of David's descendant, Jesus. Jesus. We're going to come to this space where they'll tremble in awe of the Lord of his, and his goodness. That the wrath will be gone. And we partially live in this time now. That God's wrath would be gone from those of us who follow Jesus, whose blood, who, who are covered by his blood. Because we've been redeemed by him. And one of the things that we've come back to over and over again in this conversation is that we would be motivated to love other people the way that God has loved us. That's where the motivation comes from. It can't come from the other person because the other person's going to fail us. So if it's an if then, right? It's like, if they love me, I'll love them. Nope, going to fall apart. It's if I use the example of my parents, like if I just love the way they love, then I'll be able nope, because your parents made mistakes too. Or whoever you see or whoever you model after, like, there's good examples. But he said the thing that we are to be guided by is this understanding of how God loves us. And so we come back to this question. What does love require of me? In every circumstance, this is the question we have to ask. If I'm going to love the way that Jesus loves, if I'm going to love the way I've been called to love... What does that require of me? What does that look like in this moment? What does that look like in this space? How do I work that out? And here's what we learned from Hosea. The most logical thing isn't always the most loving thing. The most logical thing isn't always the most loving thing. So while we may look at a situation and go, well, they deserve this, or they should get that, or they should X, Y, Z, or I should X, Y, Z, like I should receive this or whatever, it's not always the most loving thing. This doesn't mean just to throw logic to the wind. But at the same time, loving someone may not make sense. It may mean, again, showing up before the other person has apologized. It may mean showing up even though they don't deserve it. It may mean showing up even when they don't want it and saying, I'm here to love you because God loves me. And that's what I've been called to do. And through every circumstance, this is what I'm supposed to do. Here's what I know, and here's what I don't want to get away from this conversation without stopping for a minute, because we've had a lot of conversation about we should love this way, you should do, I should do. That that has been kind of the tone of this conversation over the summer. Because we want other people to know that we love them. But here's what I want to make sure we don't leave behind. It's just how deeply God loves you. Like, see yourself in the story of Hosea, not as Hosea, but of his wife. And say, have I, at times, gone and worshipped other things? Have I, at times, made priorities that go before God and not Him? Have I denied Him with the way I live? Have I made decisions that weren't right? Have I not listened to Him? And the answer is always yes. And so when he comes and says, I'll, I'll buy you back. You were mine. You chose to walk away, right? We go all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. They choose to walk away from the one rule God had for them. By the way, we would do the same thing. And then God has to come and not just say, I'm here. He has to come and die. He loves you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. He is always, always, always going to love you through every circumstance. So if you're sitting here and you're dealing with ideas or thoughts of, I've done too much, God doesn't love me. Or I made this mistake. Or if I make this mistake, God's going to be done with me. Not true. There could be repercussions for your actions. There could be consequences for your actions. He'll never stop loving you. He's always there to love you. And because of that, we turn and we love other people. Here's what I want us to know. Circumstances change daily. God does not. And so this love that we're called to, we can feel it because of what we see in the story of Hosea, and we can do it because of the story we see in Hosea. We can feel how deeply God loves us and then turn around and share that love with others. There's one last phrase that I want to share as we end this conversation, and I I hope that it helps. When we get to that spot and we say, what does love require of you? I I think this phrase will help quantify that, okay? I'm hoping it's it's a phrase that will help us work this out. Here's that phrase. Love leaves no doubt whose side it's on. Love leaves no doubt whose side it's on. Now, what do I mean by that? The choices we make to love other people should always show them that we are on their side. So even when it's a difficult decision, even when it's not what they want, even even when it's, you know, whatever, like you think about little children asking them not to do something or telling them, no, that's dangerous, right? They don't want it in the moment, but you are clearly on their side. They don't see it yet, but you are. This is the way we're to love other people. This is... By the way, I think part of what the church at large gets wrong. Because we we are called to love other people, but we do a poor job of showing people that we're loving them and making, them decision beca- making decisions because we are on their side. Because our goal in the end is for them to know Jesus the way that we know Jesus. That's what we want, right? That's being on their side. That's them... Understanding that God loves them deeply and wants that relationship with them. That's what being on their side means. And too often, we do things that make it look like we're not on their side because they look different, because they believe different, because they vote differently, because they whatever differently than us. We separate ourselves and, and the goal is to love them even there when there's differences so that they know we're on their side. When you love someone, It should always show them you are on their side. I hope that this conversation that we've had for a very long time now, months, right? It's something we're never going to be perfect at. It's something that's never just going to snap and we'll be like, okay, great, I'm good, right? We continue to turn that gem, understand those facets, how much God loves us. We remind ourselves of that what it's going to cost us to love somebody else. The thing I want to walk away with this from is is love turns if into even though. That's how God loves us. Not with an if, but with an even though. And that's how we're to see other people and we're to love them as though we are on their side. Let's pray. God, this conversation has been... A long road, and it's been something that has taught me a ton. I hope that it's taught others as well, and I hope that when we hear these verses in the future, that it will remind us of what it means to love like you. And I ask that you would make it clear and make it obvious in the the ways that we need to love other people not with an if-then statement, but with an even-though statement. That when people don't deserve it, don't want it, shouldn't have it, whatever that means, that we would love even though, and not just the people that are close to us, not just our spouses, our family members, our, the members of our kids, the people in our house, or whatever it might be, but that the people that believe differently, think differently, look differently, all of those things, that they would see that we're on their side. We want them to know the same Jesus we know and that we would love them even though. I pray that that would sink deeply into who we are and that we would be convicted of those times when we're loving if instead of even though. In Jesus' name, amen.